Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. You join me again from Tenerife. This time I am sitting in the spare bedroom with a lookout to Mount Tede and there's a bit of a windstorm going on outside. We're also about... I think it's about a hundred miles from the island of La Palma that's currently having all of these earthquakes and it's all over the news here in the Canaries because the lava has now reached the sea and they're still trying to figure out if it's going to pose any danger to La Palma. I guess maybe a bit more unrealistic the rest of the Canaries. We're probably fine but definitely the residents of La Palma are in a bit of a situation because here's the thing about the Canaries, because they're largely volcanic, well, they're all volcanic islands, you can buy house insurance, but you cannot buy insurance to cover you against any volcanic issues. So if your house is destroyed because of a, because of a volcano, nothing, you won't get anything from the insurers, meaning the Spanish authorities, the Spanish government have to, off their own back, step in and basically reimburse or buy each property owner their their house again. And you're basically relying on the Spanish government because I don't think it's written into law that they have to do that. So if your house is destroyed, I think you just have to wait by the phone and hope that the very kind Spanish government will come and sort things out for you. And I've just heard the Spanish government, I think, have already started buying new builds new new community buildings or well new houses that have been built by property developers and i think the spanish government have already started buying them ready to rehouse all of the people who've lost their houses so fingers crossed that works but for us in tenerife largely unaffected and it is as i expected absolute riding heaven here it's about 30 degrees every day blue skies we haven't had a drop of rain and this is what I love about islands. Everything, everything is accessible within about one hour and 10 minutes in Tenerife, meaning that you can be on the snow-capped peak of the volcano El Tede, or you can be down in 32 degree blistering heat on a beautiful sandy beach, all within one hour and 10 minutes of each other. It's got everything, the forests, it's got the, the scorching heat of the beaches, it's got the volcano, absolutely everything, mountain passes, everything you can imagine, all within easy distance. Meaning that at the end of a long ride, you're always within easy distance of getting home, which is absolutely amazing. And in Spain, I never get it because our roads in England are a bit borderline, they're slightly ropey and they're in need of investment. And any slight development project in the UK takes about 50 years to actually sign off because there have to be so many group meetings with residents and random people that take years and years and then the by the end of it, the government either rejects it or the business people trying to build X and Y just give up and basically nothing happens. There's been meaning to be a new crossing connecting North and South East London, crossing the Thames, and that's been going on for about 20 years now. And I get so many emails through my into my mailbox saying there's a new consultation going on for a new crossing. 
What are your thoughts on this and that? And how do you feel about a new hill being built or six new trees being planted? Would this adversely affect your living conditions? And I've just completely stopped replying now because it's too painful even even bothering worrying about it. So everything takes forever in the UK. But in Spain, it is like they have limitless money. The Spanish roads are... I was about to say unlike anything I've ever seen, but to be fair, the French and German roads are also incredible. Maybe it's just the British roads are dreadful, but they are pummeling money into Tenerife, the Spanish government, to make the most incredible roads. And if there's an area of the island that isn't accessible, they're digging tunnels through parts of the mountains to connect north and south, east and west, for example. I've never seen anything like it. It's incredible. And I was out on a ride with Monica. And this is a first for me. Monica and I were out. Scorching heat yesterday afternoon. It really did feel like a hairdryer was being blown at us. It was 34 degrees up in the mountains. And we went to a tiny, fascinating hilltop settlement village with only 800 inhabitants with an incredibly interesting history that I've kind of gone into on YouTube so I won't kind of repeat it too much here but basically in short there were settlers there from North Africa who averaged six feet tall white skin blonde hair and they lived there about one and a half thousand years ago until the Spanish conquest and no one knows how these settlers actually got here. It's just beyond fascinating. So Monica and I went down there yesterday and it was 34 degrees heat and there were two of us on the Bonneville and the Bonneville only has a single sided front brake disc. There's only one brake disc on the front and it's so steep and difficult to get to this place. It's a beautiful road, but it's hairpin after hairpin after hairpin to descend the hill. And this took 20 minutes, maybe 15 minutes to get down to Masca, 15 minutes solidly going down. And it was 15 minutes solidly on the brake with two people on it. So extra mass and only on the Bonneville, a single brake disc. And by the very end of this 15 minute descent, probably four minutes before the end, I started to notice my brakes were going spongy. I just wasn't getting as much feel from them. But I've never had this sensation before, so I carried on. And by the last 30 seconds, down to the penultimate corner, I started getting slightly freaked out. And I didn't say anything to Monica because she would get infinitely more freaked out. And I thought, and this is a very, very steep hill, and every bend is off a sheer cliff face getting down here. You will die if you come off. And I had almost no brakes at all. And we got down to the final bend and there were no brakes. And by the time I pulled over at our destination at the very bottom of this valley, there were zero brakes. I could push the brake in and out with one finger and it would touch the handlebar. There was absolutely nothing. So I had to actually turn the bike quickly and use the rear brake and try and use some engine braking to brake and pulled over absolutely no brakes at all had to leave the bike with no idea really what was going to happen came back 20 minutes later after having a drink and it was fine the the friction and the power and the brake had returned but we had complete 100% brake fade coming down there and I guess it was a mixture of everything 
Overloaded mass with two people on it, only a single disc, scorching heat and non-stop using the brakes for 15 minutes and that was enough to completely fade out the brakes. After 20 minutes it was completely fine and we carried on as normal but I'm, I'm certainly not preaching here because I'm not the, the best at maintaining a bike but be careful. It's never happened to me before. If you're out in a hot country and you're on the brakes for a long time, I didn't realize how serious brake fade can be. I had no idea you could completely lose 100% of your, your brakes performance. It was very, very, very eye-opening. It's back to normal now, but a lot of people have said, change your brake fluid immediately and put in a higher performance slash race spec brake fluid i think they call it dot 5.1 i've been recommended so that's just a word of warning to anyone if you're in my position just i guess just be careful because that was really eye-opening to me but we got there it was a stunning location and it was just it's just beautiful riding weather out here all the time we just it's that outdoor lifestyle i guess i see what people mean you get quite a few Brits who relocate to Australia and places like that for the outdoor lifestyle, and I do get it. Monica and I are out all day, every day, so much so that every evening I'm absolutely shattered. And I see why, relatively speaking, the UK is, is a good place to do business, because when the weather's not good, you may as well get down to some business. But when the weather's good, like in Spain we've really got to make a conscious decision to actually, a conscious effort to actually work here because it's so damn nice being outside. And the riding gear here in Tenerife, police, it's t-shirt weather for police. Police will wear t-shirts on their police motorbikes. Huge amount, probably the majority of people here, shorts and t-shirts for riding, shorts and t-shirts. So I, I mean, I don't want to, it's a hard one, isn't it? with with riding attire with riding wear i'm probably on the more more lax side of things i know there are a lot of people who say it doesn't matter where you're going you suit up all the time for riding make sure all the gear all the time and then you get some people much more relaxed about it i'd be curious on your thoughts okay picture the scene you're in tenerife it's 30 degrees you're off to do let's say a food shop or a casual ride no more than 30 miles an hour do you see the need to get in your full gear or not me personally i would probably say i wouldn't see the need if it's under 30 miles an hour but i'm not saying i'm wrong or right it's just my personal preference and here's the thing you know you could be you could be a lady in Tenerife wearing a dress on a Vespa because Vespas are very popular. They could be whizzing past happily at 30 miles an hour. So is there a need for you as a motorbike rider to be wearing the full gear if it's just a casual ride at 30 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour or under? I would be very, very interested in your thoughts. I may actually share a few of those in the next week's podcast. So do let me know. You can email me or contact me through the website or Instagram. My email, dob.bs at outlook.com. What are your thoughts on motorcycle gear when just going on casual, warm rides? My personal preference, I think jeans and t-shirts, maybe some gloves, absolutely fine with an open face helmet, but I would love to hear your thoughts and tell me if you think I'm completely wrong. Fuel prices. Because Tenerife, as I've said, is a riding dream. 
And fuel prices in Tenerife are a riding dream as well because the cost of fuel in Tenerife is 90p a litre, 90 pence a litre. And it hasn't been like that in the UK for about 13 years. So in the UK, the price is 140 pence a litre. In Switzerland, I think someone shared with me, I think it's about 150, 160 pence a litre. Rest of Europe, you can pretty much safely say it's about a hundred and probably about 140, 150 cents a litre, but it's 105 cents a litre in Tenerife, or converting to UK, about 90p a litre. Basically, it's the cheapest I've seen apart from the USA, and I had a couple of American riders saying how cheap US fuel is, and I had a look at the charts, and US is almost on another planet to anyone else with how cheap it is. It blew my mind looking at the prices. I don't understand how it works and why the US is so cheap, but it's it's so cheap you don't even have to worry about it. That's why everyone's got V8s and massive pickups out there in the US because it's just so cheap. Let's well, I say that. You know, I say everyone's got big US V8s and big pickups in the US. But actually, you know what? Last time I went to the US, it looked like everyone was driving South Korean cars from Kia and Hyundai. Let me know, American listeners. Has the US lost its love affair with American cars? I, I kind of got that impression last time, actually. Let me know, dob.bs at outlook.com. And I'll move on. Um, should I be smug by this? Obviously, every Brit will know this, but I, I don't know. Maybe maybe the rest of Europe will know about this. But currently in the UK, there's a, a huge lorry driver shortage, massive lorry driver shortage. And that means that there are not enough lorry drivers to fill the petrol stations with fuel. And the UK has completely run out of fuel. There are queues for miles going down the street. There are videos on Twitter and YouTube of physical fights outside fuel stations because there are no lorry drivers to get fuel to any petrol stations. Monica's mum, for example, she's been out on two trips to try and get fuel so she can get to work and both have been unsuccessful because where she lives in Ipswich, completely run out of fuel. Friends of mine run out of fuel, nothing to do. You're seeing pictures of people begging in petrol stations just for a jerry can so they can get home. Stories of ambulance workers not being able to do their jobs. It's it's chaos. It's almost unbelievable how we've got in this situation in the UK. I, I can't get my head around it how in 2021 we can have fuel shortages like this. So I'm keeping a very close eye on that. And I've also had a heads up from the UK that the GB sticker that you stick on the back of your car or motorbike is now going to be illegal as of yesterday for using in Europe. From now on, you're not allowed to show a GB sticker. You have to show a UK sticker and you'll get a hundred euro fine. Now, the problem I'm in is that I don't know where to get a UK sticker at all. I don't know where to get it because Tenerife are not going to sell a UK sticker because, relatively speaking, no one's stupid enough to drive from the UK to Tenerife. You just rent a car when you're here. So it's not something that's going to be readily available. So for at least for the next week until I figure out where to get one, I'm just going to have to chance my luck with... I'll probably remove the sticker so I don't draw attention to myself. Probably no sticker at all on either vehicle and just chance it until I manage to figure out where to get a UK sticker from. 
I did hear actually in the news that maybe the UK want to retaliate and say, okay, that's it then. We won't accept any number plates with the EU stars on it. I don't know if that will happen or not. <sighs> Tit for tat. Okay, here we go. I will move on because I've got some interesting stuff here. There is, let me get this up. What have I seen in the news? The new Triumph Tiger. And it is the Triumph Tiger 900 Bond Edition. And I don't usually consider adventure bikes. But this, I think, is one of the absolute coolest looking adventure bikes I've ever seen. The Triumph Tiger 900 Bond Edition. It is one of only 250 made, so you're going to have to have a lot of luck to be able to get one of these. But they've blacked the whole thing out. The whole thing is black on black on black. Little 007 logo, nothing too much. It just looks really good with arrow exhausts on the back, and it looks mean. It's it's a bike I... I'd be very proud riding that. Although I think, I think at 16.5k, it's about 3k over list price. So you're basically paying a gigantic amount of extra money just for that exclusivity. Which, to be fair, if I had the money, I probably would do it. That is a stunning bike. And of course, with the new James Bond film coming out, and they've been using the 1200 Scramblers and the Tigers. Oh, that's just just mind-blowingly good publicity for for triumph that that they will see a big sales increase from that i've got absolutely no idea no idea i've got absolutely no doubt at all listen to this i had a message a message through i think it was instagram and uh, a female rider just sent me over a message saying that she'd watched a few YouTube videos. And because I've been saying that Honda Rebel owners really rave about them, they're meant to be brilliant. And she said, I'm currently riding a Honda Rebel 1100 with a clever conversion. And I, I read that and I thought, what's a, what's a clever conversion? K-L-E-V-E-R, that's clever conversion. I thought it must be some kind of, I don't know, increased power system or ECU that you put on the bike. Anyway, I carried on reading. I'm currently riding a Honda Rebel 1100 with a clever conversion as I've only one arm. My clutch slash front brake is on my other side. That's just so inspiring. And I think, I remember this, uh, this lady on Instagram, I was looking at her profile. She passed the test, I think if I'm right, about a year ago. And I, maybe she even passed with one arm. I mean, that's just incredible. Incredible. So inspiring. There are no limits. There are no limits. You know, this, this type of thing, nothing inspires me, inspires me more. If you've got an illness or disability or you're 17 years old or you're 75 or 80 years old, the only limits are the ones that you put in your mind for yourself. That's it. I've had so many nice messages. And thank you to that lady for sending that over. That was so inspiring. But there are so many other great messages. I'm just so inspiring, you know, 60, 70, 78 year old riders getting back into riding for the first time in, in one was 22 years, one was 15 years. It's just brilliant. People getting back into riding and there's such a brilliant choice of motorbikes now that can cater for everyone. And just for me, it's that love of going out on the bike super casual rides just it could be anything to the coffee shop or a 10 minute ride out and a bike that's comfortable and unintimidating and you just want to enjoy the scenery as much as you can with with just 
the clearest mind enjoying the scenery not even trying to remotely push the bike but just enjoying that feeling of freedom it's brilliant and thank you so much for the messages it's beyond inspiring and actually that leads on quite nicely because and i can't remember if i mentioned this in a previous podcast but it's now official with a date of november 2021 as a launch date the kawasaki z650 rs is coming out in about a month's time it's a 650 cc engine it's 7495 pounds and it looks superb it's got gold wheels it's that classic retro kawasaki styling that they do so well they are an out and out proper one of the established classic motorcycle brands these z series kawasaki's are as cool as anything else on the market i'm looking at a picture of it now in that classic green with the gold rims 650 engine it's, it's just like the little brother of the 900 it's just the little brother the Z900 RS, and it looks brilliant. And that would be a mind-blowingly fun bike to ride. It's just 187 kilos, and it's 67 horsepower. Not far off the Bonneville, actually. And I think, in fact, it's very similar to the Triumph Street Twin. And I always say 65 horsepower is the magic point for horsepower for bikes on real roads, because you can enjoy every single horsepower of it. So I think that's the most incredible mix. And the Triumph Trident has a battle on its hands because they're, they're quite similarly matched. Now listen to this, because I saw an article where they said the main contenders will be the Triumph Trident, the Royal Enfield Interceptor, and now the new player in the game, the Kawasaki Z650RS. Now listen to this. Kawasaki is 7495 triumph trident 7395 so the trident is a hundred pounds cheaper than the kawasaki the trident is two kilograms heavier than the kawasaki but the triumph has 50 or 13 horsepower more than the kawasaki so the trident a good chunk more powerful actually that is a good chunk more powerful but a little heavier but also cheaper so on paper the triumph wins it but actually i prefer the looks of the kawasaki uh, for me personally i would actually go for the kawasaki purely based on the looks because i am a sucker for the looks and i just prefer the more classic styling of that kawasaki z650 and let's bring the interceptor into the mix here because they're all give or take 650 cc engines all three of these um the interceptor i think i'm sure it's a twin the interceptor i think it's a twin the kawasaki's a twin and the trident god i should have checked is that a triple but anyway the interceptor now let's get this into the running this is 1000 and 1300 pounds cheaper than the trident and 1450 pounds cheaper than the kawasaki so it's a gigantic amount cheaper and it's also a gigantic amount heavier at 270 kilo 217 kilos 217 kilos means that it's 28 kilos heavier than the trident and 31 or 30 kilos heavier than the kawasaki it's a heavy bike, the Interceptor. I felt that the first time I sat on it. And it's only got 47 horsepower, which does mean you will be left... You will be left more noticeably. I found that when I was testing it, although it wouldn't stop me buying it. It's got that old school charm. But the Interceptor is, by a long way, the worst on paper. 
but but it's the worst on paper it loses very very badly to all three of them but it's so much more than the sum of its parts it's the way it makes you feel oh it's indescribable it's out of the three I mean, financially, it makes the most sense getting the Interceptor. It's a huge amount cheaper, but I would take the Interceptor because of the way it would make me feel. And I've never tried the other two, but I just know so I'm so sure because of the way that Interceptor makes you feel, I'd go with that. I love that bike. Um, New Sportster. Someone sent me an interesting message here. Moving on. They said New Sportster is a risk for Harley because they are no longer aiming at the same clientele that they did for the old one and i agree with that because with the old sportster i it was a bike that I'd, i really would like it's laid back chilled out cruiser vibes but the new one is a completely different animal very very aggressive just savagely styled and you won't be going on any relaxing laid-back cruises on that that is a focused animal but i've had a lot of people saying that it's one of a bike that they consider buying so i guess yes they are going for a different clientele but maybe harley have enough bikes similar to that such as the street bob the Softail standard i think it's called so they've got more than enough stuff on that side and maybe now with this aggressive sportster maybe it does fit in quite well actually to the range I wanted to do a shout out here and this is a shout out for a new motorcycle company called Meet Up Moto. Let me just get let me get a few details up here because someone kindly sent me this over meetupmoto.com and it's actually an app they've got it on Android and Apple and it's basically a biker built social media platform where you can I think share rides and share tips for all motorcyclists worldwide. And the owner of this actually believes in it so much, I think he even sold his motorbikes to be able to fund it. They've got lots of stuff like biker bucket list, things like that. And they're going to be expanding and spreading out and opening up their offerings as much as possible. So have a look at that. I've just signed up. I'm awaiting my email to properly get the app, but it's meetupmoto.com. Dot com. So have a look at that because I think it's a very good idea and I don't think, I'm just checking now, I don't think there's any cost at all involved, no cost at all involved, no, no cost, so it, it's a no-brainer, give that a try, meetupmoto.com and I will give you my feedback once I've got the confirmation email that I can open the account. And two, the final point, my, my final bit for today's podcast episode and that is a motorbike that I've admired for a long time but it's expensive so I've kind of held back ever seriously considering that and that is an Italian stallion the Ducati Diavel I think I'm saying that right Diavel Diavel the Ducati Diavel and that is a muscle cruiser from Ducati that came out in 2011 it's completely unique styling it's got a 1200 cc engine it's technically a cruiser although it's it's more like a kind of muscle bike come cruiser and it's got 162 horsepower it costs 17000 pounds roughly speaking new and it it looks it just looks like such a brilliant 
talking point bike to own you know this this is a bike that will generate a gigantic amount of interest and it's the kind of bike that would make you feel very special it doesn't make any sense it's too ridiculously extreme to make proper sense but these types of bikes they really do stir the senses and i'm just getting it up now because here's the interesting thing it may be a ducati but but Listen to this. I think this was from MCN. Um, it's not as, and I'm quoting here from MCN, Motorcycle News. It's not as expensive as you may thin, think to run because it has extended service intervals of 15,000 miles, which is 18,000 miles from 2015 models onwards. But let's stay within the first generation. 15,000 miles service intervals, uh, intervals. And the only thing, the only thing you really have to worry about with these price-wise is for one it's got a gigantic rear tire and secondly the valve clearance service i think is about 800 pounds from ducati but apart from that hugely long service intervals with a big solid engine now you can get that you can get a dfl for 219 pounds if you buy it brand new through a pcp but but have a look at and i've checked everywhere on the web you can now pick them up 2011 first year they came out seven and a half thousand pounds and they even come this one i'm looking at now even comes with a backrest actually looks quite comfortable lovely backrest on that seven thousand five hundred pounds for a 10 year old dfl i i think that's just about starting to be realistic there you know someone with a budget around mine you know maybe you could get finance or something to that great looking bike seven and a half thousand pounds for that i think that's just starting to come down into a price range where yeah where maybe i'd consider that and i will oh that's the other thing i wanted to say about diavel just before i end this the diavel has let me just let me open this up MCN Diavel review because the place I usually like going if I'm checking on a new motorbike is motorcyclenews.com because not only do they do the journalists review of the bike but they also do which I find more interesting the owner's rating so motorcycle news rating gave the 2011 to 2019 Ducati Diavel four out of five stars but the owner's rating, which for me is the thing that really matters. How do the owners find it? They get four, they've given it 4.3 out of five. They've rated this bike. That is a very, very high rating. Really very high rating. And listen to a few of these. Five stars, 100 miles plus riding, no problem at all. Pill oh dear, pillion, not really. Okay, so maybe I'll forget about that. Uh, doesn't like town riding, slow speeds. Brakes excellent, performance in sports mode is manic. Well built, no sign of corrosion, fuel sensor failed, common complaint on Diavel. Hmm, then I've actually got a three star there. Ooh, okay. Not bad, okay. Let's say not bad. Someone else just said there, 880 pounds annual costs to service, annual cost service 880. Okay, it's still, I guess, a little bit Ducati, isn't it, with 
with those prices do you know i'm just not used to it now with the uh with the bonneville it's such good value but yeah okay okay bear in mind servicing may be higher than a japanese bike but come on that's still a good bike for seven and a half thousand pounds i'd be curious just before I finish, let me finish on this. Ducati owners, and I'll share if there's any interesting feedback here. Ducati owners, is it expensive maintaining and owning a Ducati? Is it like the Ferrari of the biking world? Is it going to cripple you? Let me know the maintenance and running costs of a Ducati. dob.bs.outlook.com or find me on my website or Instagram. I'm very, very keen to know. Let me know. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Please do... Uh, please do stay in touch if you've got any comments anything you'd like me to chat about let me know thank you so much for listening have a brilliant week all and i will see you in the next one